If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When the Mary Rose was rescued from the seafloor in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't just a large timber hull that was salvaged. More than 19,000 objects were raised alongside it. Everything from weapons, shoes, spoons and games to some more unusual and deeply personal items. And these artefacts don't just offer a window into life on board a Tudor warship. They also tell a much greater story about the era from which they come from. I'm Emily Briffitt, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we're marking the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose by delving back into its fascinating history and uncovering the secrets this Tudor shipwreck has hidden out of reach for more than four centuries. We'll reveal why the discovery of the Mary Rose has been so influential in shaping and challenging our understanding of the Tudor era. From the heats of naval battle and manoeuvres of royal politicking and explore what we can learn from the treasures found in the murky depths. In this episode, we're cracking open the Tudor treasure chest to peek inside and discover what's held within. And with so many objects found with the wreck of the Mary Rose, we have quite the collection to choose from. To get my hands on some of the Tudor relics dredged from the depths, I headed down to the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, Hampshire. As you'll hear throughout the episode, I'll be taking you on an exploration of the galleries and giving you a sneak peek inside the reserve collection. So you might notice the distinctive hum of the climate control systems that protect these fragile 500-year-old objects. Taking us on this tour of the collections is Dr Alex Hildred, the Mary Rose's current Head of Research and Curator of Ordnance, as well as Hannah Matthews, Curator at the Mary Rose Trust. I'm also bringing back another expert you've already heard from this series, Christopher Dobbs, Head of Interpretation at the Museum. Now, before we get up close and personal with these long-lost objects, let's take a moment to pause and imagine what it would have been like on board a 16th century warship like the Mary Rose. Over to Chris and Alex. If our listeners were transported back in time, I think what they would be most astonished about is how all their senses would be pummeled 
by arriving on the main deck of the Mary Rose. You know, that the smells, the noise, the sights, everything would all contribute together. It's probably the bombardment of all the senses that we wouldn't expect if we were suddenly transported back in time. You know, in our 21st century cosseted existence, we can almost uh, rely or just use one or two senses. But you would have been bombarded from it. Like if you went to a, a certain countries abroad and your whole body and ears and nose and everything is bombarded with all these new experiences. I think that's what it would be like and it would be overwhelming. I think it would have been very crowded with 500 people, which is, you know, the number that we think we're on board. Uh, every deck would have been crowded. You'd have had half the people sleeping during their, you know, the four hours that they were allowed to sleep um, during the, the shifts. Very busy because it, you, every time you moved the ship, you'd have to move all of the sails. So you'd have a whole group of people that were climbing up and maintaining the sails all the time. You probably had carpenters busy around the ship doing stuff and, and preparing for battle. You know, it depends on when, when you were on the ship if it was during battle it would be really hectic to actually think that all of these people lived in this small space to me is it must have been very very claustrophobic very quiet very smelly very dark because the only lights um, would have been through the gun ports and above the gun decks there were hatches in the in the deck above but those again would not have allowed a huge amount of light and there weren't any in the way of candles the only two lanterns that were out on the main deck one was with the carpenter in his cabin and the other only other one was with the cook in the galley so the rest would have been really dark unless you were carrying your own tiny candle and in this chaotic environment who might we meet hannah explains more so we don't actually have a record of exactly how many men were on board at the time of the sinking Uh, so that's something that isn't known. Do you have an inventory from a year or so after the sinking, which does record capacity for 415 men on board and in a mix of roles? So there's gunners, sailors um, and soldiers. But there would have been a real mix of teams running the ship. You'd have had the cook in the galley and his team, the barber surgeon, teams of carpenters maintaining the ship um, and tools and equipment. You'd have had Uh, young boys on board as well. We have individuals who were potentially as young as 10 to 12 years of age, um, but also teenage individuals and and young adults. So yeah, you'd have had a real mix of people doing all sorts of jobs on board. And so it would have been a very, very buzzy place to be. We'll be meeting some of the men of the Mary Rose properly next episode. But for now, let's turn to those artefacts I promised you. Walking into the museum with Alex and Hannah, one object in particular immediately caught our attention. As we stood in front of a fairly small-looking bell, I asked Hannah what it could tell us about a day in the life of a Mary Rose Mariner. Yeah, so this bell is uh, really significant. It's uh, the bell that we can hear in the background. (laughs) So this bell actually served uh, on the Mary Rose for all of her her. Uh, years of service. It's bronze. Uh, we believe it would have been cast in Flanders, which was a particularly well-known area for, for casting of this kind. But the inscription around the bell that you can see is in Flemish and it translates to I was made in the year 1510, um, which is significant as that is the year that the Mary Rose herself was commissioned by Henry VIII. And she uh, was recovered 
at the stern um, on the 8th of June 1982, so not long before the, the ship itself was raised. Um, so it's one of the, the last objects that was actually recovered from that excavation period. And this would have been a really important object for all the men on board because it actually served as the timekeeper. So you would have had what is called an eight-bell watch, and every half hour you'd have had a bell ringing. So after 30 minutes, one bell, after an hour, two bells, and you'd go up to eight bells, which would have been the four-hour shifts that all the men on board were working to. So uh, this would have been sounded at each half-hour interval, and it would have been regulated by some glass sand timers, which we also recovered. So we've got the remains of, I think, about four of these uh, glass sand timers, um, which would have been the half-hour uh, intervals. So you'd have had people on board regulating the time and using the bell. But a really beautiful and well-preserved object. And this rigorous timekeeping saw men working around the clock in shifts. You'd have had people in different roles working uh, across the ship, serving as, as crew, actually maintaining and running the ship um, alongside the, the soldiers who were there to do to do the fighting. Various roles, you'd have had uh, people in the cook's galley and the uh, his team. I mean, it would have been a very busy and noisy place to be working, but also those that weren't on shift at the time would have had to be trying to get some sleep <laughs> alongside those that, that were still on duty. Um, so yeah, this would have been a constant sound and a very familiar sound to all those men on board throughout every day. In this rigid routine, a vital part of the day was, of course, dinner time. But how exactly do you feed a hungry, hard-working crew of almost 500 men out at sea? Chris told me about one find that helped him unravel this mystery. One particularly rewarding part of the excavation was discovering the ship's galley on board, the ship's kitchen. We found two enormous ovens with even more enormous cauldrons on top of them, let into them. So 300 to 500 litres of broth could have been boiled up in these cauldrons. But these were underneath the metres of mud was then metres of a literal pile of rubble of bricks. But then towards the bottom of this pile, there were some of the ship's ovens that were still intact. So we recorded this uh, archaeologically so that many years later I could actually do a reconstruction. The great thing about doing it with modern full-size bricks was that it was a process we call experimental archaeology, that we built a copy of the ovens and then we started cooking on them, not knowing the difficult conundrum of how could they possibly cook a sort of a general nosh meal for 500 people in the crew, but then also cook really specialised meals for the officers, you know, the, the admiral and the captain and the, and the, and the high-ranking people on board. And what we found is that simply by experimenting, you could cook up a broth of 350 litres at a time. But then in that broth, in a muslin bag, you could put, cook peas. Actually, the men had peas as well. So you could have these lovely peas... They would have been dried and rather nasty, mushy peas until they were cooked. But they were cooked in a broth. I mean, Delia Smith would love that, wouldn't it? She's cooking a peas in this wonderful stock. So you could cook some food in the broth made for the crew. But we also found we could float pottery jars, just like the ones we 
found on board and put a bit of muslin around the top and seal them and actually cook casseroles for officers, again, floating in the food for the crew because this cauldron was so big. I mean, it was it was almost a metre across at the top. So you can imagine you could float a lot of pots in it. But then even better than that, this this these ovens, they didn't have a flue or chimney. They just had an open front, just like a pizza oven you might see in a traditional pizza place with the fire inside. And so you could also have iron cauldrons, cast iron cauldrons, just like the ones we found on board, again, making casseroles with the radiant heat from the embers or the, or the fire itself. But also, even better than all that, as the air came out of the oven, it just went straight up in front of the oven and you could dangle a piece of meat. It's a very good technique now. We call it dangle spit roasting. So you dangle a piece of meat in, fr- in the oven, but it's not, it's, that is not cooking with the radiant heat. It's cooking with the convected heat of the hot air coming out of the oven. So it's just like your convector oven. So we could ki- cook up sides of beef and venison bones for the officers on this convector oven outside the actual structure. And what is stunning is that putting together that experimental archaeology using real copies of what we found on board, but also what we found on board is all the food or the remains of it that they didn't have for their last meal because the mayo sank. So we've got beef bones and pork bones and fish bones that the crew would have eaten. Some of these dishes served at sea don't sound half bad. What else could the men on board expect for dinner? There are menus of what they would eat, you know, on which days of the week they would have uh, pork and beef and fish. But then we also found a, a, a haunch of venison. We found some venison bones, which and venison was a really prized meat. You know, you could only have venison if you were given it by the king or if you were jolly, jolly posh. He might give you a whole deer park so you could harvest your own venison. But it was a very, very high class meal. So we've actually got on board uh, the remains of not just to do with the cooking stuff and the eating, but we've got remains of the whole hierarchy of Tudor life. So whereas any other royal palace or house or museum you visit will all be about the posh people in society and you'll see their silver gilt and their gold and their bronze and their artworks and their their lovely vases and so on porcelain on the mayrose we've got a cross-section of society we've got the wooden bowls and the wooden plates and the wooden knit combs of the normal members of the crew as well as the pewter of the rich. Uh, and that is something stunning about the Mayro's collection. We can we can talk about life on board with authority because we've got this whole cross-section of objects from every level of society. Evidence of the food eaten on board was found within the silt samples taken during the original excavation. These studies reveal the remains of pig carcasses and butchered cattle, as well as cod, hake, eels, plumstones and grapes. And on my visit to the museum, Alex showed me something that really brought this raucous scene of a mealtime on the Mary Rose to life. As she held it gently in her hands, I asked her to tell me more. 
Well, I've got a tiny maple wood spoon, so it's carved. It's about, if you open your hand out, and it's about goes from your baby finger to the end of your thumb. And it's more like a soup spoon. It's got a big flat bowl, very, very short handle, but it's carved from an, one piece of wood. So it's, it's a beautifully carved object. And we've only got about three of these small wooden spoons. And I like to see, the only picture I've seen of one is, it, is from a Holbein, and it's actually stuck into a hat ribbon. And so that's where you might have your spoon. Now, Tudors didn't, have forks we didn't find any forks we found some pewter spoons which are slightly bigger than this and very fancy because they're pewter but this is just so ordinary and it is a sort of thing just wouldn't survive you wouldn't hand it down by generations and that's that tells you so much about that the extraordinarily ordinary things in the Mary Rose that make the story so special and because they were the things that you knew how would you eat with your hands if you didn't have it there's lots of evidence of the sort of soup type of food that you would eat during Tudor times so you can't do that with your ballot knife which would be the other thing you'd have you'd, you'd have to have a spoon so I think the fact that we've got so few and that it's so beautiful and so tactile and so ordinary that that's one of the sort of important things about not just the Mary Rose, but Tudor life in general. You know, Hampton Court kitchens, you go and look at the plates and bowls and dishes and they're all because we sent them drawings of, of the ones that we recovered next to the galley. So, you know, again, that the Mary Rose can can add to things that just don't exist because they were preserved at that dreadful catastrophe. So was it normal for everyone to have a spoon of their own or were these just things that were aboard the ship that were a general use? The spoons were not, I mean, whereas the, the plates and dishes were found in one area very close to the galley, so they're you know, stacked up either ready to be washed or ready to put the next dinner on. These, these things like the spoons were found either in people's personal chests or amongst the, you know, the clothing that they were wearing. Similarly, the, the things like combs, sometimes in chests. So the, the distribution is more widespread and they, that suggests they weren't for a general consumption they were individuals objects and this as well has got well it could be an initial it could be an s it could be a backward n or it could be a z for zorro or something as we wandered through the museum this spoon wasn't the only eating implement that stuck out so we've seen a couple of bowls with scratch marks but this one seems to have a lot more scratch marks than some of the others can you tell me what this says and what this actually means well, we think it says Nye Coop Cook, and we only have two names of individuals that we know are on the Mary Rose, and that is Sir George Carew and Roger Grenville. So this is, you know, because it says Nye Coop Cook, and because there are two objects that say Nye Coop. One is this, this bowl, if you like, and the other is the lid of a flagon. And we think that perhaps this might have been the name of the cook. Yeah, see, this is a really nice one. Look at all those marks. It's a beautiful wooden bowl. I, I can't remember whether it's older or something. It's, it's certainly dark wood. Most of the ones that were found near the galley, you can see this tower of, of dishes, if you like, and those are all beach, whereas the individual ones, and you can see here's another one that's smaller, they're all different sizes. They're found all over the ship, and they're quite likely different woods. So this has got two X's, and it looks like it's got an arrow, and then a four with what could be an H, and then in the middle of it, it's a, a square that's been relieved in, in the middle of the, the bowl. So they are absolutely beautiful, and we've got something that only looks like the biggest salad bowl that you could imagine. It's probably about the size of your forearm from the elbow to the tip of your finger, the diameter. And it's huge wooden elm bowl, beautifully turned, uh, and it's probably one of the nicest objects, I think, in the exhibition because it's so perfect. Scratchy signatures weren't the only sign that these bowls were important personal possessions to the men on board. In the reserve collection, 
Alex pointed out another interesting detail. So these are some of the dishes and bowls or dishes that were found near the galley and then a, a, a smaller bowl which was found personal possession and I, I was just noticing that this one has actually got a crack in it and we've got another one that somebody had obviously in Tudor times put thread or something through so on either side of the crack just like if you've got stitches in your stomach for an operation there were holes and obviously somebody had put thread around it to try and make good the the cracked bowl. For me it's these personal touches that really make these long lost objects come to life and things don't get much more personal than clothing. We've got over 300 shoes not so many pairs which is an amazing thing because you've got this half container why have we not got all pairs of shoes but um and the, the fantastic thing about that is a variety of styles and whereas people thought that you'd got one style of shoe that then it changed into another well we've got these things that would show that they're all being used at the same time and so again that's something that the mary rose collection as a whole can help with with things like that the typology and changing styles and things so i think we've got quite a lot of shoes we've got jerkins leather jerkins not so much in the way of of undergarment but we've got some bits of knitted knitted material quite a few hats not so much in the way of trousers or shirts we've got bits of material but nowhere near as as the much as the jerkins and we've got quite a fine selection of different again different styles so you can almost have a tudor fashion show this hodgepodge of clothing items is really interesting does that tell us that there wasn't any kind of established naval uniform at this time were outfits of Tudor green and white that were supplied to some of the officers on board. So whether that's just in passage or, you know, when you're going somewhere and you're being ceremonial or you're, you're leaving, for example, or whether you wore those all, you know, all day, every day, we certainly didn't find any evidence of things like that that you could tell on, on individuals, whereas we did find some that were wearing jerkins, leather jerkins. And as Alex showed me, it seems that some crew members accessorise their outfits with handy gadgets. Well, I'm holding here a commander. It's tiny. It's, again, it would fit in the palm of my hand. So it's not, a, it's not the size of an apple, I suppose. It's a bit bigger than an acorn and it's made of wood. But it looks like almost orange peel. It's got raised, it's got tiny hexagons carved in it and then raised pimples in the middle of it. And it's hollow. So it's to put nice smelling herbs um, to presumably make the ship smell a bit better but what it was doing is it was being worn on a sword belt hanging above the sword on somebody who we now think was from North Africa an archer who might have been North African um, which is actually quite interesting because the style of it just does not look English but that's almost a a piece of very personal clothing that uh, you know gives you an idea of you know where he may have come from but associated with him you're talking about things like silk there's yards and yards of what only looks like fantastic silk edging that might be from a uniform or something and it's it's shining it's almost gold color it's a yellowy color silk and so goodness knows what sort of uniform he might have been wearing that had that edging so we didn't find any clothes with him we found remnants of shoes and remnants of his sword and things like commander and longbow and a beautiful wrist guard with the arms of England on it so you know this foreign trap perhaps with an arms of England wrist guard with all this lovely stuff with potentially a uniform with with acres of this brocade edging. Other items of clothing seem to suggest that the men were allowed to bring more than just the practical necessities on board. 
Well, we found we found two of them, and they're both left-handed gloves. Um, you can see it's stitched together. It's quite simple. It does look very much like a, a, an oven mitt, but it was in a chest with somebody who is, in fact, if there was pewter in it. There was a book in it. He was obviously an officer. Uh, there was a hat in it. There was a. I think it's a. It's the same person who also had a cowrie shell, which is one of my favourite objects because you wonder, you know, did he just like shells or did he have anything to do with the people who used it as exchange money, where it came from? But these two left handed ones the only thing we could think about and you've seen it you can see them in hawking things is, is could it have been a hawking glove and interestingly one of the things when we were sieving the spoil uh, because we had these huge linear spoil mounds on either side of the ship because the tides went across the ship and in 2003 we were doing a sample of these to see how much was contained within them and apart from finding a couple of gold coins so increasing our collection of gold coins by about two and a tenth pocket sundial we found this beautiful tiny hawking bell which by typology is absolutely bang on Tudor and so we just wonder whether perhaps this gentleman liked birding (laughs) or hawking and that, that he had these two gloves. Clearly just like today the crew sought out ways to keep themselves entertained on long voyages. I think a lot of the things are very personal to me. The backgammon set, which was in the carpenter's cabin, it was closed. And we thought it was some sort of a picture or something because it it sort of had an inlaid edge to it. And opened it up and then you could see these counters falling out and the different colours because it's made of three different types of of wood. And the U, which is yellow, just shone out yellow amongst amongst the walnut, I think, is one of the other woods. And you suddenly realised it was a a backgammon set. That was very, very special because it's something which, you know, hadn't changed at all. It is very similar to to backgammon today. And a beautiful thing to have found inside the cabin belonging to the carpenter. The sad thing was not all the counters were there, so... You know, that's a, maybe it was in there because the carpenter was supposed to make some more counters for the ones that weren't there, but we never found the extra counters. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Of course. The Mary Rose wasn't just the home of many men. It was also their place of work. 
And since it was a ship built for war, we need to take a look at the weapons on board. Carrying 78 guns when she was launched, and 91 when she sank, and that's excluding the handheld guns. It's fair to say that ordnance was a big feature of the Mary Rose. 39 large guns on carriages stationed at the portholes certainly posed an impressive arsenal. One contemporary image from the Anthony Roll even shows the ship jam-packed full of them. As we walked across the main deck, we saw several different guns, and Alex explained why there was such a variety. Well, there's so many different types of guns, partially because if you if you went for the most powerful ones, you could argue they would be heavy and perhaps it'd be too heavy for the entire ship to have it. You've got different guns that could be fired at different ranges. So what's the point of having the most longest, all of them being really long-range guns, if you want to do some damage at closer range and you don't, you don't want to necessarily be as far away as possible? So instead of having all types, every gun being the same on one deck, which is what happened in the next 100 years, you've got different guns that firing different types of shot for different distances and different purposes. So the main two types on this deck are the cast bronze ones, which are for the long range, firing iron shot for the longer range, and they're at the bow, so as you're coming along and you're just getting in the sights, you do that one. Then in the middle of the ship, you've got one which is a very large bore, but shorter range cannon with a 60 pound iron shot, which would do quite damage at, at, at like middle distance. And then at the very end of the deck, you've got another long range bronze guns, but interspersed with them, you've got a whole series of these quite large. So again, you're talking about eight inches, 200 mil um, shot that, that would be made of stone and actually splinter its way through the side of a ship at middle distance, causing a bigger hole for a carpenter. And these are far less expensive. I mean, iron at the time is like eight times less than bronze as far as buying power. And these could be made in any blacksmith's forge. And we did that. We made one in a blacksmith's forge who normally makes iron gates for palaces and, uh, you know, wrought iron gates. And we made one and we fired it. So it's, it's quite possible that loads and loads of blacksmiths could have made all of these guns which make up the sort of 270 of these iron guns within the fleet whereas the bronze ones were you know very expensive henry actually had to bring the, the copper in he headhunted the best gun founders in europe and set them up in london at the beginning of his reign and then fostered a local um, bronze industry here uh, which were then translated into iron so he was always trying to push for, for iron guns as we can see by you know the the small cast iron guns that we have within our assemblage here. Henry's guns were a statement of power. Many of them were even emblazoned with the initials HI, meaning Henry Most Invincible. And among the scores of objects in the reserve collection, Alex pointed out that it wasn't just the guns that Henry stamped his name on. This is an iron shot, and you can see the H on it is exactly the same as the H on the bowl. So when you got hit before you died, you realised that Henry sent his love with a big, fat Tudor, very heavy iron shot. Some of the weapons on board were particularly brutal. This is Henry's attempt to get cheap uh, guns in iron, so it's cast iron. You can see there's a cast line, which is not very good for a gun. It's got a rectangular bore, which is also not very safe for a gun. And it's got this fin that is designed to hook over a rail, so it's ship-supported, and it, it, the back of it would have been tucked under your 
arm with a wooden stock and it fired small dice through this rectangular bore which causes it to splatter and in tests that we've done from about 15 meters away it really does stick to the wooden target really badly and as a, as a anti-personnel weapon would have been at close range really really horrible and the ship is lifted, listed with 20 of these we have remains of four and they were not known I mean they were a name on an inventory but finding these on the Mary Rose has been able to say that that's what a hail shot piece looks like. You know, it's in the inventory as hail shot pieces and, and it's under the sort of small category of iron guns because all of the guns are listed from the biggest to the smallest. And that's how we've, we've managed to classify many of the guns to the original names that nobody knew what a port piece was. And we find that they're actually the biggest raw iron guns on carriages at gun ports, so port pieces because of where we found them and what they were found loaded with. So, again, this is a, a, something that appears in 1546 inventory, which uh, was done as Mary Rose was still going, but presented to the king a year after she sank. And uh, that's where we get our, our ordnance list from. And they're within the fleet, they're just hundreds of the thousands of these things. But four years later, they just disappear. So they're obviously not very successful. As well as offensive weapons... The Mary Rose was also well-equipped with defensive tools, one of which we have encountered before. So what we're looking at is some rope, essentially. It's some small sections of rope, which I don't think is particularly questionable to find on board a ship. Rope, nets, rigging, that kind of thing. So why is this rope particularly significant? Why should we be looking at this? Because of where it was found, really. It was found on the upper deck, so that's the main open deck between the castles at the front and the back of the ship, which are both enclosed except for the, the top deck. Uh, but strung along this open weather deck, which is called the, the upper deck weather because it's open to the weather, over it would have been this netting, and you can actually see it on the only illustration we have of the Mary Rose afloat, which is this head of this inventory of all of the 58 vessels in the King's Fleet in 1546 when it was presented to the King. And this was found loose on the upper deck above a, an iron gun. And in fact, a, during the sinking, a huge anchor had come to rest over the iron gun and bits of netting as well, presumably from above, had fallen down. And you can see when you look at it that it is very much like a net. It's been knotted in various places. So it's almost like double triangles, if you like, giving you a di diamond type of shape. Very, very small, close net. I mean, not as small as a fishing net, but certainly small enough to be to stop people jumping on board the ship, which is what it was for. It was to stop boarders from gaining access to that only open part of the ship. And sometimes you had two layers of net. Um, sometimes you only had one. You could also roll it back if you if you wanted access. I think this was closed at the time of Mirrors Sink, so it was out and, and um, in position, stopping boarders from getting through it. On the other hand, you try and cut that with a knife and the individual bits of rope are about the size of your middle finger, so they're quite thick. And even with the very, very sharp Balak knives that everybody should have had, trying to cut that is actually quite difficult because we did a simulation in a swimming pool showing what, what it was like to try and get through it and the guy just could not do it, you know, with his one knife. It was in a swimming pool, so everything was all right, but, you know, it proved just how effective it was. I think there's some accounts as well of anti-boarding netting having tar and sand put on them to prevent the enemy trying to board from cutting through, so to, to blunt the knives if they were trying to cut through. This object, out of all the objects, really gives me goosebumps in terms of realising that it was an effective deterrent for the enemy trying to get on board and preventing them from getting on board. 
But when the ship was sinking, it had the opposite effect in that it prevented Henry's men from escaping, from getting off board, which is, is why we think there are so many fatalities in this particular incident, because they just couldn't escape through this anti-boarding netting. While the ship's ability to wage war on foreign enemies was absolutely essential, gunners and soldiers weren't the only men on board with expertise. In order for things to run smoothly, any ship also needed crew members with other special skills. Alex and Hannah highlighted another vital role on board through a somewhat strange-looking object. We have some objects here that might be more for general use, presumably, around the ship. So there is what looks to be a pepper mill there. Is it a pepper mill? Yes, it's a pepper mill. It was found in a chest uh, with pepper. Quite a lot of pepper was found in the surgeon's chest, so pepper was used for quite a lot. It was in quite a lot of medic- medicines, etc. Pepper, of course, was really, really expensive at the time. So the person who would have this chest with a beautiful pepper mill, I think we've got parts of three, we certainly got two fairly complete ones. And they, they don't have a grinding mechanism. They're more like a mortar and pestle, but they look like pepper mills. You know, they're very, very modern and, and um, very good looking. But again, that's a very highly prized item because pepper obviously is an expensive import then. And you said that you found actual peppercorns as well. Mm-hmm. That's the, quite a quite a small find, really. Oh, it is. I mean, the biggest thing was about 450 in one patch. And I think that was within the surgeon's chest. What other things were found in the surgeon's chest? This bottle. And this is a wooden bottle that it took ages to realise it got a hole in the top because because when we were first looking at it, it had, it had been conserved and it got a plug of wax in it. And I thought, you know, what is it, a skittle? Because it's quite, it's quite small, but it's the same, same shape as a skittle, but it's actually got a top that comes off. And then uh, uh, something that you can drink up out of, like, like you would have a kid's bottle, but it's all made of wood. And that was in the surgeon's chest. So we can only think that it might have been for because there was nothing in it and if it had been some dry goods you'd expect some residue if it was liquid you, you would expect it to, to eventually disappear is it perhaps it was a feeding bottle for somebody with a mouth injury or i think hannah was saying you thought it could have been a sort of shaker for some sort of powder or yeah, something a powder or a container because it's thing. quite a big hole at the top mm. but you know we can't find a parallel for that within other and, and the Wellcome Trust have been very generous with letting us look through all their paintings and and books and everything else to to try and work out the missing bits because we've got a lot of the handles of these surgical implements but not the cutting blades because that would that would disappear so we use imagery quite a lot to to try and understand what what bits we've got and what bits are missing if you like but you know there doesn't appear to be anything missing we can't find parallels to that but you know there it was in the surgeon's chest as well as the surgeon Another important role on board was the purser, the man in charge of the money. While you may expect to have found coins in his store, one object in particular seems to have stumped the team at the Mary Rose until recently. What we're looking at now is a display of objects found near the purser's in what we think was a purser's store with his chest there. But I'm drawing your attention to a handle, which is a wooden handle, and it looks as though it's got interwoven leather, a bit like a a whip has, the leather which has been interlaced at the top. And then coming down, you've got the edges of buttonholes. So you can see four buttonholes there. I think there were originally eight. And then around... At the bottom of it, we've put basically polythene in the form of 
eight pouches. And this is what was known as, as a money changer's purse. And so each one of those pouches is a drawstring pouch that is held at the top by both the drawstring and then this button that would go through the leather buttonhole and it would have currency of different countries. So if you went to a big market in, in a major town and you had people who were trading in different countries, this money changer would be able to change the currency. And this is something that's been, I love it because it's such an unidentified object for so long. And then we saw a Bruegel image that we put here as a tiny image within the caption bar of showing what these things looked like. And so something that was unidentified for so long, suddenly just because of this stick handle, which is just so obviously a, a very you know, special design for these stick purses, we've been able to identify it after years of not knowing what it was. We have a little very fine little balance set of balance scales in what looks like an old fashioned sliding pencil box. And that was found on the upper deck in the, in the stern of the ship where the wealthier individuals were found. But the little weights that go on the balances are from different countries within Europe. So we do have the suggestion that they were certainly people with different currency requirements, both on the ship and, and for the ship to be able to have uh, the ability to exchange, you know, or, or to weigh out these different currencies and use them. So in this episode, we've introduced you to just a few of the immense number of objects found alongside the Mary Rose. And there's still over 19,000 more that we could have spoken about. But to save us a bit of time, I asked Chris to nominate just one. What is my favourite object is a very difficult question because I have many favourite objects. But I think I would have to say that it is a most perfectly preserved rosary or paternoster. I have to say it partly because my wife actually excavated it and I'd be in trouble with her if I didn't say that. She joined us as one of the trained avocational divers who helped us do the work. Joined us for two weeks in 1981. You know, this rosary is just so beautifully made. It's it's a, a set of wooden beads so that you could say your prayers, you could say your uh, paternosters and your Ave Marias. Um, so it's got small beads for when you say your paternoster and then you get to the large bead and so on we've done replicas of it so that we can actually use them and they're so beautifully tactile and they're personal possessions they belong to individual people on board so you can imagine them having this as their treasured possession and they're tactile and functional and they were very well preserved somehow in the silts but as well as being personal possessions they give us an insight into middle of the 16th century you know it was just after the reformation uh, using these rosaries to say your prayers was actually banned in the 1530s. Uh, you couldn't say your prayers by rote using a rosary. And just after Henry VIII died, they were completely banned. If you were caught using one, you'd be punished because they were this sort of Catholic way of praying. And yet, you know, we had eight or nine of them on board. And you could say nobody would have been found out had the Mary Rose not tragically sunk on that day. You know, we found these people. Uh, and generally, the, these these beads and generally around the ship as as if they may have been with people when they died they may have been hidden in their trouser pockets as it were they weren't generally in the chests that we found and i i think that idea that although the actual object was banned in tudor england if, if someone had been praying using a rosary for 
20 or 30 years, they weren't going to just stop praying that way because the king had become head of the Church of England and, and it was changing his faith because of his marriage problems. Or maybe it was just a keepsake or a memento or it kept them safe. But I think to find objects like that, that's so in, intensely personal, but also shed light on the enormous things that were going on in history on the continent at the time is quite extraordinary. Another interesting theory that's been suggested is that maybe these rosaries belong to foreign crew members. And that's an idea we'll be exploring in more detail next week. The sinking of the Mary Rose was a great tragedy. But the ship's sudden and catastrophic end provides us with a unique insight into Tudor life, capturing a single moment in time. Most of the objects found on board, from mariners' shoes and pomanders to ordinary wooden spoons, are not the kind that would be saved, passed carefully down from generation to generation. In fact, they're exactly the type of objects that would usually be lost to time. And that's what makes them so special. For the objects on board, I mean, that's perhaps what most visitors are, are so amazed about. They go there because they'll see a ship or they'll see, come and see three amazing ships in, in, in the dockyard, the, the Victory, the Warrior and the Mary Rose. But when they get to the Mary Rose, it's the objects that perhaps really captivate them and then the people behind them. In fact, one thing I think was amazing when one of our publications was produced about all the objects on board, they were done by essays of experts in the different types of objects because the archaeologists involved couldn't be experts on everything. And each of these experts said, you know, this collection of, I don't know, boarded furniture or this collection of daggers or this collection of shoes is the most important collection we have of, uh, in any way in the world of this period. So it's, it's this, this matter that everything, all aspects of the work in all areas of scholarship that you could think of are important to study around the Mary Rose. Join us again next time when we'll be meeting the men who served on board the Mary Rose and investigating the secrets held within their bones. Many thanks to Hannah Matthews, Christopher Dobbs and Dr Alex Hildred for being my experts for today's episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was written and edited by me, Emily Griffiths, and produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Ellie Cawthorn and Daniel Adamson. 